Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. I am Kristen Smith, and today we have Gills Club scientist Melissa Marquez on. I got to tell you, we went through everything with Melissa throughout this interview. We kicked it off talking about her PhD and what has she been doing the last two years and how you navigate a PhD through the COVID-19 pandemic. We also talked about all her ways that she is communicating science fits through her social media or her books like Wild Survival and her new book, Mother of Sharks, or through her classes that she offers as well, which she has a new one starting on January 24th. So I highly suggest that you check that out. Link in our podcast description to be able to learn more. But man, we go through everything with Melissa today, talking a little bit about all what she does, her background, how she got inspired to do what she is currently doing, and just learning everything about sharks and how we can communicate that with our local communities and public as well. Now, a little bit of housekeeping with Gills Club. We do have merchandise, so please buy some Gills Club merchandise to support the podcast and to show your love because I say they are pretty cool. But then also we are starting our in-person meetings again. So if you are interested in joining a Gills Club meeting, bringing your little one in to learn about a Gills Club scientist and do some STEM-themed activities. All that information is available within the podcast description and as well as on all our social media sites. So follow us on Gills Club on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and keep up to date with anything that is going along with that. So without further ado, let's kick off our interview with Melissa Marquez. Welcome back, everyone, to a Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have Gills Club scientist Melissa Marquez on today. If anyone has been following a while, Melissa was featured, oh gosh, a few years ago now that you um, have mm. been, been featured. Um, You did a social media takeover, but you have accomplished a lot since then. So I'm so excited to be able to hear more about what you're doing, um, learning about your, your PhD work, dive into um, your master's as well. I'm pretty sure you were still doing your master's when you were featured last time. I'm just really excited to dive on in. So welcome. No, thank you guys so much for having me. As always, it's a pleasure and an honor. And yet, yeah, it's, it's been a bit. Some things have changed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so on your website, uh, I was stalking you a little bit before starting. <laughs> and um, being on your website, you know, you have shark scientist, author, TV host, science communicator. You do it all around sharks and science. And I like, I don't know how you find the time <laughs> to do what you do. So I think for us to get started, let's get into your shark science side of things. Um, so I would love to hear about your PhD work. I hear that you are finishing up that finishing that up right now. So I'd love to hear about that and um, your work um, looking at the conservation of elasmobranchs. Yeah, I'm very, very excited and very relieved that I'm almost <laughs> But I feel like most people who are doing a PhD feel that way as well. So if anyone else is listening to this and they're at the end of their PhD, I feel you. We can do this. It's all right. Only a few months left. Um, so I last time we talked, I was in New Zealand. And after I finished my master's in New Zealand, I was like, you know, what? I don't want to go home yet. And so uh, it's always been a dream of mine to come over to Australia to study marine biology in Australia and live here for a bit. And so I was like, you know, it's 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 right there. <laughs> it's just across the Tasman Sea. Let me just go ahead, see what it's about. Let's go. So I did a working holiday visa 
over there for about a year. And I was like, I really like Australia. Let's, let's go for a PhD. Let's see what I can make happen. And my advisors were crazy enough to say yes to my idea and to have me on. And I moved from, I was in Sydney, Australia, and I moved all the way across the continent. So it's kind of like moving from Florida to California Mm -hmm. and moved over to the California West coast, best coast of Australia. And I am now based out of Perth. And that is where I'm doing my PhD at Curtin University, looking at the conservation of elasmobranchs, but the different facets of conservation. So not just the ecology of these animals, but also the human dimensions of these animals, because I feel a lot of times and it's getting better uh, the last couple of years. But I feel like sometimes we forget the human dimension of conservation and how, you know, we can't just manage the animals because the animals they don't know about state lines or jurisdiction lines or exclusive economic zones or anything like that that they don't know where to and to not go they can't read signs they're stubborn they're going to do what they want so really it's up to us to manage how we interact with these animals and that goes into playing into the perception of these animals like you know what goes into how we perceive these animals and our attitudes towards them because our emotions and our attitudes towards them really influences our decision-making and whether or not we want to protect these animals. Um, I'm sure in Cape Cod, you guys have kind of seen a bit of a shift of attitudes towards sharks in general, going from, you know, the fear of Jaws to the fascination and a little bit of reverence after you've got that population boom. And then a little bit more of mixed feelings after those bites have recently happened, being like, ooh, all right, is it safe to go into the water? Can we coexist with these animals? Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I'm looking at, not only through uh, mass media and how newspapers and magazines from Australia and the US have portrayed these animals in the last two decades, but also actually even going a step back further into time and looking at folklore of sharks Mm -hmm. and to see how they were portrayed. Was it positive? Was it in a neutral tone? Was it negative? Uh, And in areas where there is sort of folklore still prevalent, has that had an impact on shark abundance or shark conservation initiatives? Uh, So those are the first two parts of my PhD. And then the third is more of an ecological thing. So I'm really lucky that I live in Western Australia. And what a lot of people don't know is there's still a lot of places in Australia that are not as well studied as others. So everyone thinks, all right, every place is like the Great Barrier Reef. We know a lot about the Great Barrier Reef. That's it. That's done. But there's actually places in Western Australia that people haven't done scientific work because it's just too remote. There's not enough funds, a myriad of reasons. And so I was really lucky and it was really cool that my advisor and I actually got to go do some work in a really remote lagoon in Western Australia in an area that's called aptly uh, Shark Bay. (laughs) And it was awesome because at one point, while he was driving the boat and we were getting ready to do um, drop what we call baited remote underwater video cameras or bruvs. Mm -hmm. He was like, you know, we might be some of the only people in modern times to be in this area doing scientific work, like Western scientific work. And I was like, that's a really cool thing to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 
what we've been doing with those underwater video cameras, uh, essentially for those who don't know what a brub is, it's a fancy way of saying it's some underwater cameras in a metal cage with a treat bag of fish at the end of it. So we can see what animals are attracted to the fish and take video of them, see what species it is, how big it is, sometimes the sex of those species and see kind of the biomass and abundance of them as well. So because no videos have been done in this area, we were really just interested in seeing, all right, what animals are here, not just sharks, but what animals in general are here? Um, and is there a difference in the different habitats here of the animals that we're seeing? So are we seeing less fish in the sandy areas of this lagoon than we're seeing in the seagrass or in the mangroves area? And we're also trying to see if we can get the whole picture of this area because some of it is quite remote and we couldn't actually even reach it through boat. Wow. Uh, we're going to use drones and see well, what we see. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, but how immersive of a project is that? And I think it is important, like you were saying that to conserve sharks, we do have to look at the human aspect of it while still looking at the shark side of things as well. And I think when looking at this, are you specifically because you're in such this remote area where not a lot of people have looked at, are you just then kind of focusing on all sharks or then eventually are we like honing in on one species? Like how, what is your thought process with that? Yeah. So with these underwater cameras, we were like, okay, we think we're going to see X, Y, Z sharks because they have been seen in the area, but we actually didn't know what was going to be the most common, what was going to be the most prevalent here because no one's done any research. No one's stuck a camera in there before. Um, So there were a few sharks that showed up, uh, sharks that I actually didn't know about until I got here and was like, oh, wait, that's a species. Like, uh, so I host games on social media, such as Name That Shark, where people get to look at a picture of a shark and kind of guess it. Some of those sharks and rays that I'm working with are ones that I've now hosted. And people, same exact thing as me, they were like, wait, that's a shark. Mm-hmm. So there's a shark that's called the nervous shark, which is very descriptive because they can be quite skittish and shy. There's a milk shark. Mm-hmm. There's the sh- giant shovel nose ray. Uh, there's a bunch of whip rays as well. We've, of course, got some tiger sharks in this area. So there's a few different species of sharks and rays that are here. So I think for me, this project is kind of just encompassing elasmobranchs, the sharks and the rays in general, just because there's not any kind of clear winner. But also they're all doing their own kind of thing. And it's really interesting just seeing how the elasmobranchs in general play an ecological role here in this lagoon. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I'm so excited for when you're done with your peer review and everything gets published then to hear all more about this because this is so exciting. So for everyone that is listening to this, um, being under the peer review process, Melissa can't exactly say exactly what has been you know, learned and discovered from this, but keep up to date on our social media and we will share it as soon as Melissa does as well. But then going back to the human dimension side of things, how it's hard to quantify sometimes human dimensions when looking at, you know, what one group of, of, of people might say versus another. And you said like looking back at, you know, myths and wives tales, and then just seeing like how people think about these, how Again, like how does one like quant like quantify that? And how does one really, I don't even know how to ask it, I guess. Just like how do you just 
read what people think? Are you polling people? I know you said that you, you know, um, look at like at news articles as well, but it seems mm-hmm. like a really big undertaking. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Um, so the idea, the initial idea was to pull people uh, and to have like a socioeconomic survey where we got really nitty gritty with people and asked them questions of, of how they come to form their perceptions of sharks. You know that quote where people say you make a plan and then life laughs at you? <laughs> yep. <laughs> because six months into my PhD, just as we start to get like sit down and really talk about this survey, the pandemic hit. Yep. So having that face-to-face was no longer feasible. But of course, I can't just put my PhD on pause because we didn't know when this was going to end. I mean, it's still going. So we decided to shift our methods in a way. And instead, so for the folklore, and one of the things that we talk about uh, in the limitations of this paper, this study, is that we only could find folklore, or we only used folklore that was in the literature that was already published, and that had two sources backing it up. So you could find it in two individual publications being like, all right, yes, this is a myth, this is a folklore in this general region. And so we took those, there was like over 300 that we found dating back to like the early 1900s, sometimes even earlier than that. And we then started going through them and seeing, all right, how can we quantify this? How can we take a, take this in? I don't want to say whittle it down to a number because it, it's so complex, but in a way you have to whittle it down to a number in order to do the statistical analysis. And so there's key words or key phrases or key themes that we were looking at to determine whether folklore was portraying a shark in a positive, a neutral, or a negative manner. And so then once we had that, we then broke it down to countries and or uh, regions. And I don't mean regions such as like Asia and North America or anything like that. I mean, actually like cultural regions such as Polynesia, Melanesia, uh, and the Caribbean, like those sorts of regions instead. And so we went really back and forth trying to figure out what was the best day- way of doing this. And that just felt like the most organic, the most natural. Uh, and then took that folklore, those folklore scores, took the abundance scores that a previous paper had actually done for coral reef sharks or reef sharks uh, in certain countries, and then started to do that math to figure out, all right, is there some sort of relationship? similar kind of stance for the media and so it's really hard to go I mean I think we went through like a hundred thousand articles it took me an entire year I was so the year before I took actually a break from my PhD because I was on a boat filming for a show that's hopefully hopefully crossing fingers and toes comes out mid next year um, aboard the ocean explorer so I took a year off but I was still working on my PhD because this is such an undertaking and it's just me going through it so I went from like a hundred thousand magazine and newspaper articles from Australia and the U.S. from 2000 to 2020, and whittled it down. I think to like thirty thousand, something like that, for the two of them because a lot of them, you know, had to go through them and actually make sure they were about shark sharks, not like sharks the ice hockey team or sharks the rugby team or lone sharks or the sharks of politicians, like that sort of stuff. And then we used something really similar in that we looked at the articles, we figured out, all right, what are you about? 
gave it a code. Is it code one about shark attacks? Is it code six about shark conservation topics? Is it code eight, them being an entertainment piece such as Katy Perry's shark, uh, <laughs> like left shark? Yeah. And then from there, we also ran it through a sentiment analysis program called Senti Strength. And Senti Strength will look at your sentences and then give it a, a, a score of either a positive, a neutral, or a negative score, and then give you an overall score as well for the article. And so it was, it, it's basic because this is actually the first time that we've seen someone do this for a news article in regards to some animals to figure out, all right, how are we actually reporting about sharks? How has that changed over the years? And how does that change from country to country? And the reason why we chose the US and Australia is because both are pretty constantly in the news about shark bites or some sort of shark interaction. Uh, here in Australia, we've got quite a high endemic rate of sharks. So we've got about 180 something species that you can only find here in Australia. Uh, and, you know, the US and Australia are both leaders in shark conservation as well. And so it was really interesting to see just the different cultures and how they portray sharks, how they talk about them, what the tones are as well. Yeah, it, it's something that I really hope people kind of use as a platform and say, all right, how can we refine this? How can we get to know it a little bit better? And ideally, we would go to those surveys in the future to really kind of get to the nitty gritty and figure out, all right, what factors really go into how a person perceives an animal and what can we do about it when we need it to work in our favor? You know, when you look through it, through not just through, you know, continents, and then you're getting into each like specific like region and groups and how going back to your, your folklore side of things, you know, it, I'm just, it just popped in my mind because, you know, we are in the hall in the holiday season and everyone has their own version of Santa or, you know, like in German it's Krampus and, you know, and how it's all different throughout the world, depending on where you are. And you see that with sharks. So I'm always, I'm thinking like, what is the most like intriguing piece of folklore that you heard about sharks? Oh, that's tough. <laughs> There's, there was some really, really good ones. Um, I think the ones that I've kind of resonated with the most, and I found the most interesting are the ones from Australia because I'm living here. And so I kind of get to see the modern day impact of those folklore of that belief in those folklore uh so the aboriginal communities here in australia it's not just one monolith there's hundreds of different communities and so that means that there's hundreds of ways that they interact with uh, sea country mm -hmm. and it's just beautiful seeing how they attribute animals to actually creating some of the landmarks that we see today uh, in just the geography and the topography of the country and also of the coastline. And so I think that's probably been the most interesting for me, just the way that like there's one where stingrays have swam along the northern part of Australia and created what we know as some of the rivers and some of the coastline there because they were either leisurely swimming or they were being chased by another uh, elasmobranch like a shark and I, I think it's just really beautiful and I 
again, because of the pandemic, haven't been able to go to any of these places personally just yet, at least not all of them, but I'm really excited to go up to the northern parts, so like the Great Barrier Reef and Northern Territory, where a lot of this lore comes from, and just sit there and see it through the eyes of this folklore and be like, wow, this is a piece of history that some people might not even realize they're looking at uh, in just the topography of this land. And I think that's going to be really special. So I'm excited for that. It does sound truly special. So, and I can't wait to hear more about that and see things when you actually get to get to travel up there. But I really think in kind of transitioning to other parts of what you do, you wear many hats as we talked about earlier, but I think in this big part of looking at how, you know, human perception of sharks has a lot to do with science communication and how, you know, scientists and, and, and conservationists are, you know, portraying sharks and how they are, you know, communicating what they do and what sharks are. And I think, mm. you know, I, I just saw on your Twitter say, thank you. Think today was Shark Tooth Day, or I forget which day it is, or or Shark Tooth Days on Tuesdays. I know you have themed days, and it's so much fun to follow along. (laughs) But uh, I think you do personally for me in my eyes a such great job in communicating sharks and science and what you do. If it is, you know, doing those little contests of what the species is or what the shark tooth is, but it is just a simple way for people for sharks to be obtainable. Like if if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. No. And. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that. And that means a lot to me because that's the idea of my outreach is for a lot of people, they've never seen a shark in real life. Yeah. Uh, or the closest thing that they'll ever get to seeing a shark is through the glass of an aquarium, which is a wonderful way of seeing these animals. But there's such a difference but from seeing them like that to seeing them actually in the wild, not withheld in a tank behaving naturally in a way and so for a lot of people the way that they do get to see these animals is through only through social media or through documentaries and I think it's really special to have a part of a person's journey with an animal and with their relationship with nature because if you're impacting their viewpoint on one animal how do you know you're not impacting the way that they're looking at other animals as well? And I'll give you an example. I've had, because of these days of Shark Tooth Tuesday, of Name That Shark, of ID That Ocean Critter, I've had so many people come up to me being like, you know, I always thought of sharks as just this scary, mindless, man-eating creature. But because of your days, of I'm getting to see the diversity of them. I'm getting to see the articles that you write. Uh, about the science that's being done and the motivation behind the scientists as well. And that's one thing that I like to add in my articles is why the scientists decided to study these animals, because sometimes people can connect with those reasons, but showcasing the different science and being like, oh, you know, these animals are really in danger, not just in like one part of the world, but all over the world. And this is the really cool stuff that we're learning. This is why they're important to the oceans. And it's really cool because I've been holding these games for so long now that people have told me, you know, my mind's been changed about how I see these animals or, oh my God, Melissa, I got all of the sharks right for name that shark this week. I'm getting better. Like, this is so cool. Um, Or, oh, I've never heard about this shark. I Googled it and now I've learned so much about it. And it's just being a part of that experience of a person's relationship with nature is just really special. Mm-hmm. And I remember my 10th grade AP bio teacher, uh, shout out to Miss Longino, 
who told me that I would be a great teacher after I gave a presentation that was only supposed to be 10 minutes about sharks for extra credit. And I did it not because I needed the extra credit because I was an nerd in AP bio and got really good grades, but I just really wanted to talk about sharks. And it went from 10 minutes to like a 45 minute class because people kept <laughs> constantly asking questions. And at the end, she was like, you would be a really good teacher. And I was like, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to be in like four walls constantly talking to students who are ungrateful and who don't care. And what I didn't realize is that she's right. I ended up becoming a teacher, but just of a different type. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it is in four walls, but I've always, and I'm very lucky, knock on wood, I've always had students who were really excited to learn about sharks and about the ocean or about anything really that I'm having to say. And so, yeah, I I think it's a great privilege to not only be a scientist and be doing this research that's really cool uh, and novel and filling in those little knowledge gaps that we have in the shark science world, but also sharing that with people in accessible, fun ways. So yeah, it's been one heck of a journey through my science communication journey, and I wouldn't change a bit of it. That's so good to hear. And I think it's important for you to note that, you know, you don't have to be a quote unquote teacher, even though teachers are incredibly important. Mm. (laughs) Well, we'll put that out there. Um, But because that's something that we get here with a lot of our staff and, um, And for me, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. My degree is in marine science. And I just fell through this path of this informal scientific communication, going into schools or doing talks or leading an eco tour where then, you know, I, our education director and our other staff here did come from the teaching world as well. Um, So it's interesting that you say that, that your 10th grade bio teacher said that you should be a teacher because I was getting that in college too. And I was like, why would I go back to grad school to be a teacher? (laughs) And then like, here I am. (laughs) It's quite interesting to hear that dynamic and that you can be able to teach and bring that out to light. Now I was in a school last week and I pulled out a a Megalodon tooth and a kid like fell out of his chair. (laughs) They're like, oh my God, it's a real Megalodon too. Like, yep. (laughs) You know, so it's just something that like, you know, I do multiple times a week, but you know, like for that child, like to see that Megalodon too, it was like, you know, it was mind changing for them to like be able to just see like, oh my gosh, like that's how big that they got to be. And um, yeah, so I love that. But I think with you do so many different things with science communication. And I know you're probably going to say there's not a favorite, but I have to ask, is there one way that you like to do it more if it is through social media? Because you can reach so many more people. Is it writing your articles? Is it doing the TV shows, the talks? You know, you write books as well. Like, what's your favorite if there is? Yeah. Oh, that's so hard because, I mean, you you would know it's each social media platform or each way of doing social like science communication is so different and targets different audiences. I think probably one of the most rewarding is talking to the little kids. Like when you go to the schools and stuff like that, I think that's probably the most rewarding because little kids, as soon as you mentioned sharks, more often than not, they're fascinated and they think you're the coolest person since sliced bread, which is like, a, if you're having a bad day, great ego boost. Oh, but it's also hard not to be as enthusiastic as them. 
And I think one of the cool thing or one of the things that makes me a good science communicator is I never lost my childlike wonder about the world. I will sit right along with a group of fifth graders being like, why? No, but why? How? But why? (laughs) And that's just me constantly about life. And so I think that infectious curiosity that you get from kids is such wonderful Kindle to or Tinder to fire that you have in yourself as a science communicator because you're like cool if I'm getting those kids excited I can get adults excited um it's just really rewarding the energy is so off the charts that every time I leave from talking with kids I'm usually giddy and I've got a huge smile on my face and I'm like that was really nice and I always say this after every class I'm like you're my favorite class but I've got so many of them where I'm just like this is awesome because all of them have been so special and unique in some sort of way I think probably one of my most favorite classes was I got to teach my brother's class uh, when he was a little bit older and the banter that we had like back and forth was kind of fun to do and just special because he knows. And this was actually very early on in my career as well. Like I was still in uni and so he was being quite silly and it was fun to just be like, I know where you live. You're literally like in the bedroom right next to me. Shut up. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I love that so much. I, um, very similar. Our education director always does one for her nieces and nephews in their school. Um, it, it's very much the same banter because it, it's auntie up there. And I already know about sharks because like, what else do we do when we hang out with auntie mm-hmm. talk about sharks? So um, yeah, she de- definitely gets the same thing, but that's always fun because I feel like the, um, the other youth in the class just get more like engaged and have fun as well. But I think then this could be a bold assumption. Um, but then is that maybe why did you start writing your books? Cause you have the wild survival series. Like, is that cause you love working with kids or is this something that just like naturally progressed in your career? that like, I want to write a series. If you had asked me a few years ago, if I was going to be an author, I'd be like, nah, if you had asked me when I was a kid, if I was going to be an author, I probably also would have said nah, but I loved reading and I loved writing. I used to write all the time, just stories that were swirling around in my head and I just had to get out on paper. And the Wild Survival series actually came out of a mistake. And what I mean by that is I, so the power of social media, not only does it get you a wonderful audience to talk about animals with and whatever endeavors that you're up to, but it also helps you connect with some really amazing people. Uh, there's so many people on social media that, again, because of the pandemic, haven't been able to meet quite a lot of them. But before the pandemic, especially when you go to conferences, you're like, oh, I know you on social media. How cool. It's nice to put like a face and a voice to an icon and a username. And so one of those really awesome people that I got to meet and actually last year this time got to meet in person is my book agent. And I forget what I saw. It was like a prompt or something on Twitter that was like, hey, people who are burgeoning artists, like authors, what's an idea in your head that you kind of want people to know about? I have like, this is going to be a place where agents are going to be looking through. And if they like your 
idea, they might reach out to you sort of thing, which is so cool. Like what a way to get stories from all around the world in a just nice, neat area for people to be able to see. And then you can kind of have your picking and choosing as an agent. At that point, I was in between degrees and I was kind of back into my hobbies. Like I was back to cooking for fun. I was writing again. And this story came to my head and I was like, it's based on my grandfather's library that I grew up in. And it's about a magical library. And I put it out. And this person named Alex reached out to me and said, hey, I really like this idea. Let's chat. And so then she became my agent. We pushed it out to a few different people. Um, And through this process, I had done my first Shark Week show, which is when I got bit by the crocodile. And I had done a a few interviews about that because people were curious. Naturally, they would be. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, it's not every day a shark scientist gets bit by a crocodile on Shark Week. (laughs) And so we went to Scholastic with the original story idea and they're like, we like it, but we've already got something of that genre already in the works. So we're going to say no. However, we saw Melissa's recent interview and we think she's really good at telling a story in regards to like wildlife and how to survive in sticky situations. Is that something that she'd be interested in doing? And my agent and I were like, yeah, let's let's give it a try. And so this story of the Villalobos family and wild survival came to me on a bus stop because back then I used to take the bus and it took me two hours to get to and from work from where I lived. So I had a ton of time to listen to podcasts, answer emails, and then of course, write. So the first drafts of wild survival were written on my iPhone notes on scraps of paper and napkins that I could find that just hit me whenever. Uh, And eventually we came back to Scholastic and they're like, yeah, we love this story. We want three of them. And that's how it was born. For me, part of it was really cool. And one of the reasons I don't think a lot of people realize is that the three books are centered around three predators that have sticky relationships with people. Yeah. (laughs) Crocodiles sharks and jaguars uh and it was just really awesome to be able to put out books that I wish I had growing up but also include travel different languages so you could read and understand and learn those different languages because around that age group that we've marketed this for that's like the prime of learning different languages and then of course different people me as a Latina in shark science, you know, growing up, I never saw any Latinas in marine science or science in general. And so for me, having those role models was very, very important. And one of those ways that you get role models is through what you read. And so that's why it was really important for me to have the Villalobos family be Afro-Latin because my cousins are Afro-Latin. Uh, it was really important to have characters who are adopted because some of my best friends are adopted. Uh, important to have some cameos and some characters be from other parts of the world, be part of the LGBTQI community. Just every single one of the characters that you see is a representation and a mixture of the people in my life. So some of them, it's quite blatant by their names, such as 
Connor, the Australian sound producer. That's my then partner, now fiance. Thank you. Uh, Faye is a mixture of my two brothers. The parents are a mixture of my parents and also some of my role models in life. The other people on the crew are some of the crew members are actually the names of some of the crew members that I did some of the most poignant filming with in the past couple of years. And so there's little cameos that if you read it and you know me well enough, you can be like, oh, wait a minute, that's me. Or I know who that person is, or I can see this kind of thing. And so it's really, yeah, it's just been something I never thought I was going to do. Another way to reach out to kids and adults actually as well a lot of adults are reading these books being like these are actually really fun to read as an as an adult yeah it, it's grown and it's something that I really really enjoy and I hope that I can continue doing for years to come mm-hmm. um I definitely want to read them it's on my reading list for next year so don't <laughs> <laughs> but I think how how special is it that you have this inclusion of so many people in your life, but then anyone that can pick up that book will most likely relate to a character or know someone in their life that is that character. And it's just important, not just inclusion for that, for the human aspect, but very much for the animal as well. You know, we're looking at jaguars, sharks and crocs, you know, these animals very similar to what your PhD, you know, like looking at people, um, how they perceive these top quote unquote predator animals, you know, and putting them in a different light. (laughs) as well. But I also wanted to point out, and it's probably something that you already know, but I just think it's, it's a little funny to me that how you said that if you would have been asked as a kid, if you would have been an author, you would have been like, no. And you said the same thing to your 10th grade teacher. And they said that you were going to be a teacher and you went, "Hmm, no, (laughs) I know. I'm like, I'm looking back in my life now being like, what else have I said no to? What have I got on myself? It's like the universe is like, oh, you don't, you don't think you're going to do that? Cool. Let me plot twist. Yep. (laughs) But I think it's also interesting that, you know, you did this report on sharks in the 10th grade. So it seems like that, that seed was already planted there at a very young age. So can I assume that young Melissa was always a shark lover and sharks were going to be something on her career path for the rest of her life? It's so interesting to me, just the different ways that shark scientists or people who work with sharks in some capacity come to working with these animals. What a lot of people arguably say is the worst thing that has ever happened to sharks, such as Jaws, is the same exact thing that so many people, that was their inspiration to study sharks. So you never know. Yeah, you never know what is going to light that spark in a person. And so I think that's also part of the reason why I try to make my science communication so diverse is because you never know what's going to resonate with people. And that's why I've gone from, so now I've got a picture book coming out uh, next year called Mother of Sharks, which is both in English and in Spanish, actually, as well, Madre de los Tiburones. Uh, So I'm hopefully by the end of the year, I've got everything from like the youngest of youngest kids to the oldest people who are reading about sharks and the blue economy and the Australian financial review with the like articles that I'm doing over there as well. So yeah, it's, it's interesting how we say we're going to do one thing in our life. And, you know, I always said, from a kid, I wanted to be a shark researcher and stuff like that. And I think to some capacity, I will always do some sort of research, but whether it's going to be my main thing, I don't think so. And I don't want to say it's because, oh, there's enough researchers or anything like that. I think it's because 
I'm better suited at being a storyteller for people's work than just being a researcher. And there's nothing wrong with just being a research scientist or anything like that. Like, kudos to you because someone has to do that work. I just think my strengths lie in being that bridge between the scientific world and the rest of the world being like, hey, there's, there's this really cool, awesome stuff that you don't know about. Let me tell you about it, how it impacts you and what we can all do to help protect these animals. And yeah, I still have tons of questions on my own that I want to research, which is part of what I'm doing the PhD, because I want to have that ability to not like run my own lab or anything like that, but come up and be like, hey, I want to do this. Can we do this? And people be like, oh, yeah, all right, why not? And go from there. (laughs) (laughs) I think that resonates so much with me because that was something when I graduated and thinking of like, well, what am I going to do when I moved up here? I was on more of the research side and then I fell in love with, like you said, being that bridge between science and public and, you know, Mm -hmm. sharing that with people. And, and I've very much like you have a kind of like fell into my niche. And that's something that when I do programs with middle schoolers and high schoolers, especially with high school students that, when they are thinking about what, what are they going to do? You know, they think that, oh, to be in science, if I want to work with sharks, I have to be like the people that are seen on shark week and shark fest, which they absolutely can do that. If that is what you want to do, go get it, like be that person. But then also like, there is this such wide array, like someone that is like you or like me, or that we have, um, in our own science team, we have Victoria who runs our, our drone project, but then also stares at GoPro video footage to ID white sharks, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. or then you have Maddie who runs the gills club and our ecotourism program, teaching people how, you know, to see sharks in their natural habitat and having that one-on-one. And so there's lots of different ways that you can, if it's not sharks, you know, in anything you want, you know, there's so many different like niches that you can have for that. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and it's one of those things where I, And I don't know if other people kind of felt this way. And I don't know if you felt this way, but in my head growing up, I was like, I'm going to be a shark researcher. I'm going to be a shark researcher. I'm going to be a shark researcher. And then as I grew up, I'm like, I want to be a shark researcher, but I also really love this science communication thing. I almost felt guilty being like, Ooh, am I, am I stepping away from science? Like what, what does this mean? Like, am I almost in a way allowed to switch dreams or at least pivot dreams. And I think it's one of those things that as you get to know yourself a little bit better and you get to see those strengths and what you really shine in, it's totally okay to be like, you know, this is what got me interested in this world, but I want to pivot away from it. I want to change. I want to do something a little bit different and that's totally fine as well. And so, you know, as people listening or anyone who's kind of like doing a degree and stuff like that, if you have kind of like that inkling or that niggling feeling of like, oh, I love being in this sphere, but I want to be present in a different way. I want to show up in a different way or contribute in a different way. That's totally fine. Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, you need people representing all sorts of science, not just the researchers, not just the leaders, not just the writers, not just the science communicators. You need a little bit of everybody. And that is still doing science. That is still doing valid science in some sort of way. Yeah. I think we sometimes put a bit too much pressure on ourselves of what path we should follow because we're like, okay, we've got it in our head. This was the original path. Don't stray from it. Do what feels right. Do what 
you are passionate about because that's where you're really going to shine. Oh my goodness. Yes. Just like nail done. That was great. But (laughs) but, um, I I usually ask scientists, can you give us advice before we wrap up? I don't even think I need to ask you that because that (laughs) you wrap that up at all in one. (laughs) Um, But I'm just going to echo that. I fully agree. And I think if anyone that has been a listener of this podcast since day one or have jumped in at any point in time, that we all know that our scientists, our scientists team and scientists that we have interviewed here have not had the path that they thought that they were going to take. It is Mm. different with pretty, I want to say maybe one had like the straight and narrow that they knew what they were going to do. Even that just might've strayed a little bit, but I think, you know, you never know what's going to happen. I love that you said, you know, follow what, you know, your inkling is saying to do and not, it's okay to go off your path and it's okay to not stick to the plan. I mean, look at your PhD. You didn't stick to your plan because there was a pandemic. And I mean, it sounds like it's still going to be an incredible, you know, group of, I don't want to say group, you know, just incredible findings. <laughs> I'll, we'll mm. go with that with, 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 with everything. So I think, you know, it's all about that adaptability and being able, you know, to go with those ebbs and flows. I'm going to get, you know, punny here, the tides <laughs> of, yeah. of life as well. But I think that was, that was really just, I was like wrapped up again. Christmas wrapped up into a present there. That was really cool. <laughs> um, was that. So I think just to wrap up, Melissa, so people can see all of your amazing science com- communication, where can they find you? All over social media. Um, so on Instagram and Facebook, I am at Melissa Cristina Marquez. Twitter, I'm at MCM Sharks XX. Usually if you look Google just Melissa Marquez Sharks, my smiling little face pops up and you can go through my website there. Uh, My website has links to all of the books that I've got as well, including the one that is available for pre-order right now, Mother of Sharks. I will also, if you kind of want to be a student of mine and just learn a little bit more about not only sharks, but also our oceans in general, uh, a new course just launched with me with Atlas Obscura today where I will be starting January 24th uh, be doing a deep dive on oceans and it seems like again this year I'll be doing a shark course as well which is going to be really really exciting so yeah really really stoked that if people want to be a student of mine in a more kind of like formal setting instead of just doing like the social media stuff you could be a part of that there's lots of puns involved. (laughs) There's some wonderful PowerPoints. um, And yeah, you you get to learn a bit about the ocean that you probably don't know uh, and don't get to see the ocean in this kind of light as well. Uh, And I'm always up to talking to people about their journeys, giving them tips uh, and yeah, just talking about the oceans in general and how awesome they are. (laughs) I love it. Well, everyone go give Melissa a follow, a like, sign up for her course, follow up with everything that she is doing. And just thank you so much, Melissa. This was a wonderful conversation, um, being able to talk to you today and really learn a little bit about everything that you are, are currently doing. So thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me.